But what I want to have you grab hold of is this idea of Horton, here's a who. I want you to think about that because we're going to actually talk about a connection with something bigger than you and bigger than me. Uh, there's a, a lot of people who talk about the gospel according to Seuss, and, and what they're getting at is that, is that here's Horton who's holding a dandelion, and he believes there's life there, and he wants to help. He wants to be a part. But maybe more than anything, you and I can identify with Jojo, who says, I know there's more. I know I'm one little voice in the universe, but I know there's more out there than me, and, and I believe, I believe. And, and when he begins to believe what happens, he interacts with something greater than himself, and it's real. I want you to think about this. If you think that all there is to life is what's around you, what you can see and touch and feel in the moment, I, isn't it true? Wouldn't you agree with me? Wait, there's, that's not accurate. That, that's not even close to accurate. Something else is going on right now in China that may affect you. Something's going on in Washington that has no effect. They can't do anything. Uh, I'll leave that. And, uh, but you know what is, is the most important thing to understand? There really is a God who loves you desperately, who cares about you more than you know, who says, are you going to believe in me? Are you going to trust me? And then he wants to reach out and embrace you in intimacy. Let's pray and we'll talk about that. Father, I pray we'd more than ever understand how great a love you have for us, how often you want to grab us close and have us draw near to you, and what it means to have intimacy with you that's real and, and alive. And may we understand this kind of life we're called to. So I ask, oh Lord, my God, my Father now, please touch us. Open our hearts and minds to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what, I, I want you to grab hold of two things right now that you just lock in your mind. One is, is God has designed you to relate to Him and to relate to others. The great calling of God is that you would love Him with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. That you would love other people and that you would allow them to love you back and allow God to love you back. That's what you're created for. God designed you that way. The great architect made you that way. Uh, Noam Chomsky, who uh, teaches at MIT, uh, he's a linguist, said this. He said, anybody who understands the complexities of grammar would have to come to the conclusion that it was not put into a person or designed within us by accident. Now, I want you to grab, Chomsky would not at all be a Christian, uh, just as a professor from MIT who studied this for years. He is amazed at the complexities of grammar. Not just language, but grammar itself. And he says, you know, it, when you start understanding that, there's no other conclusion to come to than that you and I were designed by something outside of us to communicate. Now, what is he saying? Here's what he's saying. If you and I took a baby and we handed it to a Japanese family and they raised that baby in Japan, what language would that child speak? Japanese. You take that same child and put it in France with a French family, allow it to be raised, what language will it speak? French. You put it in the South, it'll learn something unintelligible with an accent and <laughs> took a shot at Washington, the South. All right. Uh, no, no. Here's where we're going. But, but Chomsky said the language isn't the issue. It's the grammar at uh, the complexity of grammar. I mean, think about it. You just start doing it and then you go to school later and they tell you how complex it is. And it's like, what? And, and here's his point. Something designed you for that. It couldn't happen by accident. You were designed to communicate. 
Uh, I was reading a Newsweek study that goes to something else that fits with this. Uh, uh, the study was uh, an article on a series of studies, to be more accurate, that talked about wow, how we are made to empathize. We are made to not only communicate, but to connect emotionally with those around us. And what they began to discover about children is amazing and off the charts incredible. And that's this, that babies in and of themselves, a healthy child does not have to be taught to empathize with those around it. In other words, if the mom walks in the room tense, we know now the baby realizes that and actually communicates and identifies with that. You know, you think about, mom, if you're tense, your baby knows. Or if you come in joyful, that baby knows. You didn't have to teach it that. It was designed within it. In a healthy child, there's empathy. They even found something very intriguing to me, that children will cry in sympathy for one another. Now think about that. Little baby, here's another child cry. It doesn't cry back out of irritation. They found by doing brain scans, that child, that child cries out of sympathy for the other child. They've even played sounds of the, their own cry, and they found they don't relate the same way. If they do cry in that moment, it's not a sympathy cry, it's an irritation cry. Now, now do you understand where I'm saying? Where did that come from? Well, the scientists who were doing the studies have no clue. They said, you know what, the bottom line is, somehow that was designed within us. So Chomsky says, well, you and I were designed to communicate. Uh, these other studies said you were, and I were designed to relate. And, and then we come to a very interesting book called The God Gene. It's a few years back that this book came out. Dean Hammer is an expert in the DNA molecule. And he says in this book something very, uh, at the time it became controversial. Dr. Hammer said this, as an expert in the DNA molecule, he said, just as I can isolate the area of the DNA molecule that tells me what color of eyes you'll have, brown or blue or, or, or you know, green or whatever, he said, there's a part of the DNA molecule that if you're healthy will cause you to reach out to God. Now, he said, it's innately designed within your DNA to call out to God. And, and he believes this. He believes it as a scientist, interestingly that a healthy person in their DNA reaches out to something beyond themselves to God. And then, not only does he believe that from his own studies, he goes into other studies that back this up. Uh, uh, for instance, when they do brain scans on people who enter intensely spiritual states, where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you're connecting with God. I've had that. If you had that, hopefully you've had those times. If you had no moments where you said, man, God was here. They said, now they can take a brain scan and they know before you say it, it's about to happen. Because when you enter into those intensely spiritual states, it changes you physically. But the change is always for the better. It's something that happens. Your body functions more efficiently. Uh, your brain begins to release monoamines, which ups your pleasure level and your sensitive level, sensitivity level to, to a whole new realm. And they found that our immune system functions better. You know, we've always known, everybody always agrees with this, that people who attend church regularly tend to live longer and be healthier than those who do not. But uh, the reasoning behind that's always been, well, because we probably don't do as many of the destructive things that those who do not attend do. But they're finding that that's only one factor that goes into it. The other factor is this, when someone consistently experiences God, their immune system functions at such a higher level, that's a huge factor in why we're healthier and live longer and even better.
Now, what does that go back to? Well, Dr. Hammer says this, you and I were designed for it. You were made for it. And here's what gets me, is when they did the brain scan on people who were entering in times of intense connection with God, either through meditation or through prayer or reading His Word or interacting in communion and worship, they find out the pleasure center of the brain lights up in a way it almost never, ever does. As a matter of fact, the pleasure center lights up, the monoamines are released at a higher level than someone having sex. Worshiping God is better than sex. That's pretty good. And uh, Psalm 1611 says this, he says to God, you will show me that path of life. Now, by the way, notice how intimate God wants to be. God, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. Now, catch the next line. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Did, did God ignites the pleasure center of your brain just by touching you and being close to you and drawing near you in a way that you could never experience any other way? Uh, Dr. Hammers found four conclusions that he found amongst those who were intensely spiritual people. Uh, he found that people who are intensely spiritual are people of optimism. That no matter what's happening in their life, they always believe something better is going to happen, something in the end is going to work out. By the way, we, we have another word for that, all of us who are part of the faith community. We call it faith. Uh, he says it's optimism, but it's faith. It's faith in God. Faith in a God who loves and cares about us and has a plan for your life, who will show you the path of life, who will give you fullness of joy, who will help you conquer in the end. So anyway, he's right about that. The second thing he found amongst intensely spiritual people is they tend to have, and here's what Dr. Hammer calls it, transpersonal identification. And I thought, okay, what does that mean? Well, what he says is this, because of our heightened sensitivity, we tend to connect and be more in tune to people around us. We tend to be more caring, more aware, more alive with the people who are interacting in our life. And he calls that transpersonal identification. Uh, the, the Bible has another word for it. We call it love. It's a little easier, isn't it? And that what happens is when you're intensely spiritual, love just starts happening in your heart and life, and you become more aware of people around you. The next thing he says that happens is interesting. He says the third aspect of intensely spiritual people, they tend to be self-forgetful. Now, what is he getting at? We tend to not care so much about who we are and our needs and what we want. We start wanting more uh, for other people and caring about the needs of others and wanting to meet the needs of others. By the way, the Bible has another word for that. It's called servanthood. And healthy people serve. And then the last one's very interesting. He said, he goes, I can't get over the fact that people who are intensely spiritual tend to be mystics. They tend to talk about things happening that there's no other way to happen. Miracles occurring. Uh, uh, moments of guidance. Moments of divine appointment that just comes your way. And he says, I just, I, I was not expecting that. But by the way, all of us who know God, don't you expect to live that way? Now, now here's where I'm going. You might say, Chuck, you lost me. So let me go back to it. Chomsky says you were designed to communicate. The studies I cited said you were designed to relate. And now... Dr. Hammer says, I can't get a, beyond the inescapable conclusion that every single person in their DNA was made to relate with God. Now, the Bible teaches that and tells us that, but I want you to know that not only did the great architect, the great designer, design you uniquely and specifically to have a relationship with him, he also designed the way we would relate to him. 
Now that's what brings us to the study of the tabernacle. The tabernacle teaches us how to relate to God, how to do it His way, not ours. So we're not trying to invent the process or invent the method, but what we do is we tune into Him more than ever. Have you ever asked the question, why was Moses on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights? Now when you think about that, we know that God gave him the Ten Commandments, but that was something God wrote out and gave to him. He didn't need 40 days to do that. God's not like, hey, man, it takes a long time to engrave. No, that's not how it happened. He was actually showing Moses and teaching Moses the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a huge tent in the midst of a uh, rectangular uh, 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 area of curtains where God wanted people to come and worship. And, and, and I want you to catch what happened. He needed to know exactly every article that would go in it, every stitch that would be within the linens, how it would be built, how it would be protected, and how worship was to happen in it. If you want to know where God-designed worship is described, you study the tabernacle. And quick parentheses moment. I have found that people who really want to understand the Bible will never understand major sections of the Bible unless you understand the tabernacle because it keeps being referred to constantly. But let me take you back again. What are we saying? The tabernacle is how God designed worship and intimacy with Him to be experienced. Uh, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, it says this. God says to Moses, See that you make them... And them is all the articles in the tabernacle and everything within it and how worship was done within it. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. God just taught it over and over again. God was so serious about this, he repeats that phrase three times. Earlier in Exodus 25, 9. Later on in Exodus 26, 30. It's that big a deal to God. Uh, in Acts, Stephen begins to talk about the tabernacle. I mean, he's about to lose his life, but he talks about the tabernacle, and he says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as God who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Moses did not invent this. God said, this is how we can get together and have amazing intimacy. I've designed you for it. I've designed the process for it. Bring it together, and we're going to be close. The writer of Hebrews talked about the priests of the Old Testament were actually doing something that was a copy or an image of what would take place in heaven. And in Hebrews 8, 5, it says, those priests serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. In other words, what was happening on earth, the real thing, the, the actuality was in heaven. And it says, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle and said, see, God says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now, have you noticed over and over again, God said, I, I, I designed this. So we look at the colors. We look at the design. We see the articles of furniture and what they represent. It teaches us how to interact with God in amazing ways. Now, I know there's a lot of depth to this, but I believe as we go through this together, you're going to find an enrichment to your relationship and relation relationing with God. Uh, in Exodus 25, 1-9, there's something that stands out right away. The cost of the tabernacle. Now, God designed it, but it was going to cost a lot to do it. In Exodus 25, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 2, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. He said, people who love me from the heart, man, they're going to want to give. 
They're going to want to make this happen. See, God said, here's the design, but I want the, you to be a part of it. So you give back. And by how the way, how were they to give? They were giving out of the blessings that God gave to them. And he says, I want you to call everybody whose hearts moved out of love for me to be a part of this. Verse 3. This is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, and goat hair. Ram skin dyed red. Porpoise skins. Porpoise skins. Peter would not like this temple. Um, and acacia wood. Oil for the lighting. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod for the breastplate of the high priest. Verse 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me. Did you catch that? Now, if you haven't been listening. God said, I want you to do this for me. This is what I want. Do this for me that I may dwell among you. That I, I, I want to be close to you. Do this this way so you and I can be intimate together. And then in verse 9, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. God designed it. Now you need to understand that not only did God design this and call for people to give to it, this would be literally the most expensive structure square foot for square foot ever into existence. Even more than the temple. I want you to think about this. It wasn't very big. As a matter of fact, it was uh, 75 feet across, which is about that section of our worship center there, and 150 feet long, which would be from the screen all the way to the wall there. And it would be basically this section here with a big outer court and a temple area that was that, the tent itself that sat in it. And yet, are you ready for this? According to Exodus 38, 21 to 31, it would have one ton, 2,000 pounds of gold throughout it. Do you know how much that would cost today? $54 million of gold in a structure that size. Uh, it would also have four tons of silver, which would be over $5 million. It would have two and a half tons of bronze. And, and by the way, just those precious materials alone would in our day and time be $60 million. That doesn't include the porpoise skins and all the other things that go in it. $60 million. This was extravagant. And, and I want you to think about this with me. When we think about doing things for God, why is it we have bought into a culture, not a biblical culture, but a culture that acts like whenever we do something for God, it ought to always be less than. When we do it for ourselves, we pour money into it. We do it for God, it's like, nah, God doesn't need it. Yet God said, if you want to do it my way, you got to give precious things to me, extravagant things that we use to interact. Uh, the city of Los Angeles just announced a $1 billion football stadium. You know what that is? That's a cathedral to sports. Now, I'm not anti-football. As a matter of fact, the city of Los Angeles could not be more excited to get it. But I didn't hear anybody going, oh, I can't believe we're doing that for a football stadium that only meets a few months out of the year. Uh, in the city of Phoenix, they announced a $100 million shopping mall. You think there were protests against that? No. You know why? That's a cathedral to materialism. Our culture loves materialism. We love sports, which is hedonism. But when it comes to God, oh no, don't do that for God. We don't put God first. But God said, I want you to know that this is a place where you and I will meet together and it's an extravagant place for us to meet. And if you say, well, I'm not sure I like that. Remember who designed it was God. And I want you to know how extravagant God is. As expensive as the tabernacle was, 
he did something even more extravagant to meet with you. He gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And that makes the tabernacle pale in comparison to how much you're worth. Now, I always think God's an extravagant God. You matter that much to him. And if we act like, oh, let's just give God a little here, a little, then you've missed who he is. He gives everything to you. And he wants you and I to come and meet with him in amazing ways. That's what the tabernacle showed. And that's what the children of Israel jumped into. And when the call was given to give, they started giving and giving and giving till they finally had to say, stop, enough. You guys just keep. And they go, they cried, no, we want to keep giving to God. And God was blessed. See, God loves the tabernacle. And the devil and the Antichrist hate the tabernacle. If you're listening, you might go, wait, what? Do you realize when the Antichrist comes and lives on earth, he's going to blaspheme the tabernacle? Most of you, and we don't even think about it very often, when he's living to hurt God, to, to create pain in God, to hurt his feelings, he's going to attack the tabernacle. In Revelation 13, verse 6, it says, The Antichrist opened his mouth he blasph with blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. Did you, the Antichrist is going to literally say, man, I want to cause God in pain. I'm just going to scream against the tabernacle. I'm going to talk against it. And, and, and when you start to understand everything it means, I think you'll go, wow, I see why. Why it matters to God. But the devil knows it matters to God. The Antichrist knows it matters to God. But listen to how that verse ends. That he'll blaspheme his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. See, the tabernacle, just like the church is a building, but it's also people, but it's not really a building, it's more people. The tabernacle isn't just the tent or the, 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 the tent that will be unfolded in heaven, and we'll see in a minute that still happens there in some way, shape, or form, but it's the people who are within it. In other words, it's not to be empty. It's to be filled with those who love God. And that's how God calls it. The tabernacle, the tent of the meeting, the people who come to be an intimate with me. And the Antichrist screams against it. And then God says, when we're in heaven, he'll spread out his tent up over us, his tabernacle up over us, so you and I can be brought closer than ever. In Revelation 7, 15, it says, For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he, God, who sits above them on the throne, will spread his tabernacle over them. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I remember when I was a little kid, my dad said, You want to go camp in the backyard? Any of you ever camp with your dads in the backyard? Anybody else? I'll never forget that. It was like we got all our stuff and we went out in that tent and we sat together and my dad and I talked. Now, why was it different than talking in the living room or talking in my bedroom or, you know, in the car? There was something special about getting in that tent. And God said, I want you to come in the tent with me. I, I want to spend time with you. I want to be that close to you. And by the way, it was a beautiful place to be. It was gorgeous and vibrant and alive. The colors were amazing. The colors of the tabernacle were purple, scarlet, and blue interwoven with gold. And I don't know if, if any of you here go, wow, what would have happened if you walked into our church and we repainted everything purple, scarlet, and blue with gold all around? And some of you would go, I don't know if I like that. And God would go, I designed that. You know, he made that. He thinks they fit together pretty well. And then imagine angels everywhere. Everywhere you looked where the angels were embroidered in gold, especially on the curtain on the Holy of Holies that said that, you know what, until God Jesus would split that curtain, we weren't to come in. We were to understand there was something blocking us. When Jesus died, the curtain was split and we were ushered into the Holy of Holies. But everywhere angels were that talked about the idea of the power of God and the worship of God and the awesomeness of his creation. And then there were smells, wonderful smells. 
incense fragrance going and, 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 and animals being barbecued in different ways and, and the smell of fresh baked bread. And, and, and God wanted us to experience that. And you know what else happened in the tabernacle? Eating and drinking. Now I want you to grab, God loves to be worshipped by us gathering together and eating and drinking. Don't you love a God like that? He goes, come on, if you're going to be around me, eat. And we're like, yes, and, and drink. And, and God would have that happen. And as a matter of fact, prior to the tabernacle being unveiled, God called for all the elders of Israel to come with Moses to the mountain, and he appeared to them. And in Exodus 24, 11, it says, God did not stretch out his hand against them. In other words, he didn't say, I'm going to strike you dead. He said, no, I want to call you to me. And they saw God. And what's it say next? And they ate and they drank. God says, if you've seen me, then go celebrate. If you've seen me, I want you to do that. That's why in Nehemiah chapter 8, it says when God's holiness was unveiled, people go, oh, the holiness of God. And then the next answer was, but don't cry, don't mourn when you understand the holiness of God. You go out and invite people to eat and drink and celebrate with you. Because this day is holy to the Lord. A holy day is a place of celebrating with God. And God wants that to be the way it is. What does that mean? Church potlucks are biblical. And I love that. So... And then there was the sounds, loud singing from a big choir that would lift praises to God constantly. Trumpets being blown that would echo throughout the land. God's wanting his place of meeting with us to be vibrant and alive and, and even electric and incredible with, with fire burning and, and smoke ascending and choir singing and people worshiping and smells that are incredible and eating and meeting. And that's what it means to be with God. And you know, somehow, some way we've got away from that. Now, hopefully not here at Crossroads, but I'm saying the church in general. I actually have a concern that we have bought in more to Greek stoicism than to biblical worship. I want to say that again. There's a concern that many, many parts of the world, Christians have bought into Greek stoicism, the idea we just sit quiet and, and don't show emotion, than biblical worship. Do you know what the number one word for worship is in the Bible? It's the Hebrew word halal, and it means to act clamorously foolish. I don't have a problem with that one because every time I sing, I'm making a fool out of myself. And, uh, but you know what? God says, that's what I want you. I, I want this to be out there. I want this to be incredible. I want you to desire me and want to be close with me. I've designed you to meet with me and relate with me. And I've designed places and ways for us to meet in intimate ways and be together. And you know what God did? God invited everyone to come. In Exodus 33, 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of the meeting. Did you see another word for the tabernacle? is the tent of the meeting. Now here's the question. He said, I, I want you to come meet with me. Listen to what it says next. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of the meeting, which was outside the camp. Here's the question. How many went? Six million people were invited to come and meet with God, but how many came? Well, we only know of two for sure. Moses and Joshua. And Moses, when he would enter in, everybody would be way at a distance going, oh, Moses is worshiping God. And they would even bow down, almost worshiping Moses' worship. Yet they were invited to come too. You see, I want you to grab, God is saying to you, and God is saying to me, do you want this? But it was so small. 
I mean, think again, it was only the section here of our church would be the, the whole tabernacle facility completely. Are you ready for this? It was 150 feet by 75 feet, and the outer court area, at the best, at best, could hold 1,000 people at one time. And you know what God was saying? I, I know what he was saying. I want to meet with everybody, but I know that only 1,000 people will get even somewhat close to worship. Now, that's not how any enter into real worship and intimacy, but about a thousand people might come and take advantage of an opportunity to be somewhat close to me, but they're never going to be truly intimate with me. And then the, the actual tent structure uh, was 45 feet by 15 feet, which is about probably from this row right here all the way to our screen and about the width of the screen. And when you came inside the beginning part, it was... 30 feet by 15 feet, 450 square feet. And, and maybe 50 people could fit comfortably doing the kind of worship you needed to do. Six million people told, come meet with me. Only, only about 50 would ever enter into the holy place. Here's the question, would you have? Would you take the time? Would you make the effort? Would you come to meet with God His way? Would you say, I want to be in there more than anything? Because God says, I want you to be, and when you do, I mean, we are going to share life together and love together. I want a place to meet with you. And do we do it in our day and time? And then, you all know that, that there was the big veil which guarded the Holy of Holies, which was 15 by 15, and maybe 20 people could fit in there, maybe. And I know some of you who know your Bible say, oh, only the high a priest went in, and you're right, except... When Jesus died, he tore the veil so we could all go in. How many of us desperately desire to be in the Holy of Holies? Some stand outside and say, man, I love God. Others get closer and say, oh, I, I love interacting in the holy moments with God. But some enter into his intimacy completely. And I want you to not miss this. God wants you to. George Barna, two years ago, did a survey where he found 45% of the people in the United States say that they have had some kind of an interaction with Jesus, not just God, but Jesus, to where they'd actually say they're born again. But then when that group of people, the 45% who said, I actually now think I'm born again because I, I've had an interaction with Jesus Christ, when he asked them questions that tried to determine how meaningfully they practiced their faith, only 7% of people in the United States practiced their faith in any kind of meaningful way. Now, just your choosing to be here on Sunday means you're higher, more, more likely to be in that 7% group than not because you take the time to do that consistently. But I want to tell you, it's not just coming here, although this is part of it. It's, it's being in your word every day and praying every day and, and, and using your gift for service and all the things that become meaningful so you and God share life together. But it's not just going and doing things. It's about inner, an inner relationship with God that's real. And God wants to. He wants it for you. When I, uh, years ago, started my youth ministry here at Crossroads Christian Church, uh, this was the town that I graduated from high school. And so when I got here, I bumped into a couple who I went to high school with, and they said, hey, could you come pray with us? And I'm like, oh, yeah, they were so excited that Pam and I were back. And so I arranged to meet the husband and wife at their house on this particular day and, and drove up, and he wasn't there yet. And so I went inside, and she goes, come on, I'll get you something to drink while we wait. He'll be here any moment. And I walked into the kitchen area, and, and I, I got kind of where the kitchen and the dining room table were, and I looked over on my left, and there was the living room, and I saw this really cute little boy in furry pajamas, little blonde-haired kid. 
and, and, and I said, oh my gosh, your son's so cute. And she got pretty emotional and looked at me and said, that's why we wanted to have you here. She goes, come on. And uh, this was new to me back then. I've now learned a lot more about it. But I walked over, and as we're going, she started to tell me that he, uh, he's three years old, and he has autism, but it's a very severe, severe case of autism. And so I walked over to him, and I reached down to grab his arm and I, his shoulder. I said, hey, buddy, and he just pulled away from me, and then just kept playing. And she and I stood right behind him talking. He never, ever acknowledged this once. And she said, Chuck, this is the hardest thing ever. She said, I love that little boy. We love him. But I have never, ever once heard him say, Mommy. I've never had, hugged him and had him hug me back. Whenever I try to reach out to him, he pushes me away. His hearing is fine. His vision is fine. The doctors think that there's just so much going on in his brain. He just tunes everything out around him. And while she was telling me that, he goes, oh, dog, dog. And if you listen way off in the distance, I mean blocks away, you could hear a dog barking. He could hear a dog, but he couldn't hear his mom. A mom who wanted to pour love into him and draw him close and sing over him and, and give him guidance and at times tell him, no, don't do that, that'll hurt you. And then I started thinking afterwards, I remember sitting and praying and praying for him, but I started thinking this, how many, how many Christians are autistic children of God? That God is so close and he wants to speak into your life. He wants to guide you. He wants to have an intimacy with you. He wants you to experience those deeply intense spiritual moments you were designed for. And he designed ways for you and I to experience him. And how many Christians, it's not that you're not Christians, by the way, but they're Christians who, who God is talking and you just don't hear, but you hear everything else around you. And when we start talking about the tabernacle, the goal is for you and I to move more than ever into the holy of holies, into a place of intimacy where you actually, truly know God. John 17, 3, Jesus said this. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. This is what it's about, knowing God. And not just believing in him, not standing outside the tent looking at it. It's entering into that amazing worship, that amazing intimacy, that life with him where, where everything begins to ignite within you the way it was made to. Today, there are many, many, many of you here, church, part of our church family, that th you do this. This is your life. This is who you are. And you're going, yeah, I love that. But if you're here today and you're not experiencing a real relationship with God, I want you to know that he wants it for you. He was so extravagant in showing that love, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. And I want you to know he could not have offered more than that. But you matter that much to him. And today if you're here and you're living a life that's a disaster, filled with hurt and pain, he wants to have you come close so he can heal the hurt and pain and create in you something new in a life. Today if you're here and you've never said yes to God, he wants you to come and draw close to him. The Bible says, how do you do that? The Bible tells us to call on the name of the Lord, to pray, to say, God, I want this. And in a moment, we're going to go to a time of prayer and if you're hurting, I'm going to ask you, say yes to God. And if you 
are here today and you've never ever crossed what we call the line of faith to say, God, I want to be with you. I want this. I'm not even sure what it means, but I'm ready to say yes, then I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer. And today, if you're a Christian, a Christ follower, and for some reason you're not where you should be today, I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer and recommit your life. Come back to him. Do a vow renewal service with him right now. So let's go to God in prayer. Father, I pray and ask that you would take this time right now, and God, I pray that you would inhabit this place that we want to have be yours in the way you want it to be yours. And oh, I pray and ask, oh Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would just flow upon us and around us and, and with us. Open our minds, our hearts, our souls to you. And I pray right now, Lord, that your spirit would start touching anybody here who needs to commit their life to you. Oh, God, I pray you'd start stirring within them, drawing them close. I pray right now there would be those who would know this is their time, some to recommit, some to have pain and hurt healed, and some, Lord, to come to you for the very first time, that right now, they're deep in their heart they can sense this is a time and God I think there's a person sitting here now they're not sensing that but they want it they're tired of not feeling they're tired of not having that they know something's missing and I pray right now they would be ready to call out to you and pray this prayer to you because they want to say yes to you God for the person who's sitting here today and they've been trying to work up the courage to tell another family member what they've been doing. God, I pray they'd start today, not with that, but by saying yes to you and committing their life completely to you. And you see what's going on and you want to help them. Father, for the guy and girl who are here today and they've been wanting to hold their relationship together, but they're struggling. God, I pray you start stirring and that both of them would realize this is the moment. They, as they grow close to you, they'll grow close to each other. And you'll change what's happening between them into something beautiful. God, for a person today who's so afraid and so scared, they're not even sure how they're going to make it another week. I pray right now they would throw themselves into your arms. So we ask God right now that you begin to touch and move and stir everybody who needs to come to you. I'm going to ask that we keep praying, and right now I'm going to ask this. If you're right with God, and I mean this, would you start interceding and praying for those who need to come? Just start praying for them. Maybe God will even get you to look right at the person you need to pray for. But I'm going to lead that prayer right now, and if you today want to say yes to him, I want you to begin the process by praying this with me. Or if you want to come back to him, I want you to begin the process by praying it with me. So right now, if you know this is your time, and he loves you, he wants you, Would you whisper this prayer with me? Just say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know that you died on the cross to forgive me all my sin. All my sin. To heal me from all my hurt and my pain. To free me from fear. You gave yourself to make me alive, to make me new, and to make me yours. And I say yes, I want this, and I want you. So I open my heart to you. 
Please fill me with your love and fill me with your spirit. And help me be, help me be who I was created to be. And help me live the life you have for me to live. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And amen if you prayed that prayer today.